Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. In the parish I was born and reared in, Ballylongford in North Kerry, there's a graveyard near the Shannon called Lislockton Abbey. It was once a monastery, but was destroyed by Cromwellian forces in the 1650s. Generations of people are buried in Lislockton Abbey. Almost 40 years ago, I wrote a poem about the resurrection of these buried generations. A resurrection they would all have believed in. Like all matters of faith, the very idea of resurrection is beyond logic and reason. So this poem tries to capture the feeling of an event beyond reason and logic. The poem moves out of the world of argument and proof into the world of belief which, simply by being belief, has no need of proof. Lislockton Abbey Flashing starlings twist and turn in the sky above my head, while in Lislockton Abbey lie the packed anticipating dead. Silent generations there that long had bent the knee endow the Shannon with the grace of reaching to the sea, swollen by the rich juice of the dead, The Shannon moves with ease Towards a mighty union With Atlantic mysteries But though the river sweeps beyond Each congested bone Its currents do not swirl towards A resurrection Any more than starlings do That fearing death this winter day Create small thunder in the sky And shelter where they may Ignoring green Lislockton where subtle shadows pass, through shattered altars, broken walls, the blood of martyrs in the grass, into the ground that winters well and blossoms soon or late, preserving patient multitudes who are content to wait till they at last disturb the stones, the fox's lair, the starling's nest, to find eternal history, to wonder with the blessed, to hear the word for which they wait, under the coarse grass, the meanest blade of which assists in what must come to pass, to see why silent centuries have finally sufficed to purge all in the rising flood of the overflowing blood of Christ. Restless at the gate, I turn away, groping towards what can't be said, and I know, I know but little of the birds, the river, and the dead. Clonan is an unusual surname. Just one O, not Clunan, so easy to research online. A couple of years ago, I tracked down Lieutenant Joseph Clonan of the 36th Battalion, Australian Imperial Force. I'd never heard of Joe, but one click on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission 
brought me to a series of online military documents that laid bare his life and his tragic death on the Western Front during World War I. He died on the 10th of November 1917 at Ypres and is buried at Y Farm Military Cemetery, Bois-Grenier, France, just south of Armentieres. One click through mouse and screen connected me with Joseph, almost a century after his death. I visit his grave each July with my own sons and daughter. My youngest traces his finger in the letters Clonan, carved in the white headstone. During one of the COVID-19 lockdowns, stuck in the house, I wondered if I could repeat the exercise and discover any other lost Clonans. In my home office, I entered the surname Clonan into another digital slot machine, this time the Irish Times online archive. Lightning strikes twice. Within seconds, I have found Joe Clonan's uncle, my great-uncle Patrick Clonan, from Coulronan, County Meath. From the Irish Times of Thursday, the 20th of October, 1892, under the headline, The Murderous Assault on Mr Lilly, District Inspector, I find Patrick Clonan's surname highlighted repeatedly. The Times reports the sensational court case where Patrick Clonan was charged with violent assault on a district inspector of the Royal Irish Constabulary on a moonlit October night in 1892. Tried by Major O'Brien, Major Montgomery and County Sheriff Mr Nathaniel Dias, the evidence and the odds seem heavily stacked against Great Uncle Patrick. In evidence, the RIC District Inspector Charles James Lilly stated that he had encountered Patrick Clonan and a John Stone on the road from Raharney to Athboy on his night inspection. He demanded their names. However, instead of a reply, Patrick Clonan seized the horse's head on the driver's side, causing the horse to rear up. Patrick and his accomplice, John Stone, then grappled with the RIC man, throwing him to the ground. According to the evidence, when he was down, Clonan knelt partly on him and held his throat with both hands, saying to the other man, now that he's down, give him seven or eight good ones on the head. The smaller man, Stone, hit him several times on the head with what appeared to be a leaded stick. Stone then said, let us finish him now. According to the court, however, Clonan said, let him alone, he's had enough. But Lily had not had enough, it seems. At precisely that point, events took an even more dramatic turn. According to the report, the district inspector had a small seven-chambered Colts revolver, which he drew. He fired a shot, point-blank, at Clonan. Wounded in the chest, Patrick ran for home. Bleeding heavily, he ran four miles from Killaconigan Crossroads across the moonlit bog to the Clonan family homestead at Clockbrack, Coolronan. He was arrested there, lying in his bed by Constable Chambers, the following morning at 7am. Patrick Clonan's bullet wound would prove crucial in identifying him as the district inspector's assailant. Constable Chambers deposed that they found Clonan in bed. They found his shirt at the foot of the bed with a bullet hole in it. On examining his waistcoat, there was the appearance of a bullet hole in it. Waistcoat produced in court. They found his coat, both sleeves wet with blood. The medical officer of the Athboy Dispensary District, Dr James William Green, stated that he found a bullet wound on Clonan over the second rib on the right-hand side. 
At this point, Clonan and Stone were committed in custody for trial on the charge of attempted murder. Meanwhile, back in the present day, the trail goes cold. I do not know Patrick's fate. I do find District Inspector Lilly in the RIC archives. Originally from Leicestershire, he lived to the ripe old age of 78 and died of natural causes in Lahara, Limavady in 1935. Apparently, he regularly spoke of the murderous moonlighters who had left him for dead on the road to Beliver. Eventually, through the online register of deaths, I find Patrick Clonan once more. He too died at home, in front of the fire, at Clockbrack, Coolronan, at the age of 66, on the 20th of October, 1932, 40 years to the day he was charged with attempted murder. Significantly, he died under his own roof, on his own land, granted to him by the Land Commission of the newly formed Irish Free State. My father and grandfather, ironically both policemen in the Dublin Metropolitan Police and Garda Síochána, have both passed on. I cannot ask them about Patrick and the charges laid against him. However, I do remember my father talk about the moonlighters of the late 19th century. In the aftermath of the Coercion Bill of 1881, in protest against landlords, unfair rents and evictions, the so-called moonlighters rose up across Ireland to mount midnight raids and attacks on the landlord class and those who would collaborate with them. On this Remembrance Sunday, the new moon over Ireland has reached its waxing gibbous phase as we approach a full moon in five days' time. In this time of renewed crisis in the area of housing rights and homelessness, I imagine my great-uncle Patrick and his contemporaries haunting the moonlit boherines and streets of our 100-year-old republic, staring in disbelief at the men and women huddled under blankets and sleeping bags in laneways and doorways all across Ireland. Many years ago, a friend and I sought out the venues where our favourite poets were reading. It didn't matter that we had to travel over an hour there and back on dark November evenings. To listen to poets weave words into a tapestry that brought colour to our mundane, small-town lives was recompense enough. Words that sang of possibilities and of loss, that spoke to us in a way that nothing else could. It was on one such night that I went to listen to Brendan Kennelly read in Kerr Castle. I was in my twenties, a few years into my first teaching job in the Mercy Convent Secondary School in Kerr, and I couldn't believe that Kennelly, my favourite poet, was coming to my home patch. Armed with my earliest collections of his work and an excuse to meet my idol, I thought I'd sneak into the back of the packed banquet hall, late as usual. 
I didn't mind that every chair was already taken, but I hadn't banked on standing space being gone too. As I tried to squeeze into a space in the corner, to my horror, Brendan Kennelly paused in his reading to announce, There's a special seat waiting for you, right here beside me. I looked around, hoping he was addressing another latecomer. But no, all eyes were upon me. Brendan beckoned to me from the upper end of the banquet hall. It's reserved for the Queen of Care, but it's yours for one night only. Mortified, I made my way, eyes fixed on the parquet floor, to take my seat beside this evening's guest of honour on a richly brocaded, carved walnut chair, a royal throne. The poet extended his arm towards me, Welcome, Your Highness. I hope you enjoy your visit. At this stage, my face was the same colour as the scarlet cushion on which I sat. Brendan resumed his reading from a time for voices. Head low, I pretended to follow, but inside I was in agony. I imagined my pupils hearing of my plight and giggling at the new nickname I was sure they would assign me. But as the evening went on, I adjusted to my role and began to appreciate having the best seat in the castle and the best vantage point with which to observe and listen to my hero. Afterwards, I joined the queue and asked him to sign my collections of his work. He winked at me jovially and smiled apologetically when he asked me if I had enjoyed my coronation. He said he hoped he hadn't embarrassed me too much. The first collection I asked him to sign was a white-covered, untitled copy of his new and selected poems published by Gallery Press in 1976. Brendan was intrigued by this and asked me where I came across it. I told him that it was given to me as a gift by my parents when they came to visit me in Kenya, where I'd been working as a volunteer teacher in 1982. Knowing I was a fan of Kennelly, they obviously went to great trouble to find this collection, but I will never know where they came across what he told me must be a galley proof. Since neither of my parents read poetry, I was very moved by their gift of Kennelly's earliest poems, which I read and reread so often I can still recite some of my favourites, The Gift, My Dark Fathers and, of course, Begin. It was this stained, spine-torn and thumb-marked copy that I presented to its author who dedicated it to the Queen of Care with his customary wink. Back in the classroom the following Monday, the convent girls were either too astute or too polite to whisper my new nickname. I was a religion teacher at that time and, tucked away in the religion room, I felt free to broaden my remit and photocopied poems and lyrics that had even a tenuous connection with my subject matter. One day I decided to brighten up our sacred space with flowers and distributed photocopies of Kennelly's poem from a three-year-old. Who will bring new flowers that will not hang their heads like tired old people wanting sleep? 
And if we have new flowers, will we have new people too, to keep the flowers alive and give them water? And will the new young flowers die? And will the new young people die? And why? That poem started a great philosophical debate which the girls readily engaged with. I was grateful to Kennelly for words that reached out beyond convent walls into young hearts and minds, starting to consider the bigger questions in life. The last time I met Brendan Kennelly was in Listole in 2018. I was in the local hall listening to the poet Michael Longley recite from his latest collection and Brendan was there too. During the reading, Michael spoke directly to his old pal but it was obvious even then that my favourite poet was losing light and it saddened me and others who were present. Brendan Kennelly once wrote that poetry was a gift that took him unawares. Now that my own first collection of poetry has just been published, I wish I could gift Brendan Kennelly with my own gift that took me unawares and tell him he will always be fondly remembered by the Queen of Care. It's in November that I hear them first. It begins as an echo, so faint I wonder if I'm wishing it into reality or if it is, in fact, real. I rush into the garden and scan the skies. Where are they? The sound grows a little stronger. My eye catches movement to the north and then I see them, descending slowly in their usual raggy formation. Tears prick my eyes And I'm glad I'm alone so that I don't have to try to explain why this sight and sound makes me emotional. But this is a homecoming and homecomings are the most delicious reunions. Flying low, they establish that all is in order in the field behind my house before dipping their wings as they execute a slow motion, soft landing on the grass. As they do, They disappear from my view. But they are back. They are safely home. I want to rush out onto the field to welcome them. My Brent geese are back. I had been worrying, as I do every year, that they wouldn't get here. Every year, thankfully, I am wrong. My geese have flown from the high Arctic in Canada, where they breed during the summer months. They are the most northerly breeding geese in the world. As the tundra descends into an icy winter, tens of thousands of light-bellied Brent geese begin their epic journey south to milder weather, which the vast majority of them find in Ireland. They travel via Greenland and Iceland before arriving in Strangford Loch, County Down, 
where they rest, before some will make their way onto their chosen locations around Ireland, a great many around Dublin. November melts into December, deep winter. Darkness falls in the middle of the afternoon and the city and its suburbs become bright with twinkly lights. Trees are bare skeletons and the ground is hard with frost. The earth sleeps and still more geese arrive. Above the suburban noise of traffic and sirens, the familiar guttural honking heralds their daily commute to their field. Once they're on the ground, I can get a view of them from an upstairs bedroom. I watch as they move slowly, heads down, enjoying the grass on which they graze all day. I wish I could talk to them. I have so many questions. What was the summer like in Canada? Have they ever seen a polar bear? How was their incredible journey over the Atlantic Ocean? But all I can do is watch them from a distance and wonder at their grace and elegance. In January, the year will turn. It will be cold and bitter, nature will sleep on, and still more geese will arrive, creating an airborne spectacle twice a day. If undisturbed, they will spend the day on the field, until the sun's milky light begins to fade, and they depart in a mighty flock, heading north out over Dublin Bay to the Bull Island, where they will spend the night on the calm waters of the lagoon. It is in January that I will make a pilgrimage northside, arriving ahead of the sunset, to witness the incredible spectacle as thousands of Brent geese spill in from all over the city, their grey dipped wings silhouetted against a burnt orange sky. As Covid swept the world, grounding us and causing us to miss family abroad, my geese continued to make their perilous crossing of the Atlantic to come home. I cling to the hope and to the promise of better days they bring with them. Once springtime takes a firm hold of our world, my geese will begin to leave again. By late April, they will all be gone and I will be left pondering on these wondrous, magnificent birds with their silent stories. As I do, I wonder if somewhere deep in the Canadian tundra there is another woman who is waiting expectantly for the return of her geese now that the Arctic winter has softened. And I wonder if her eyes tear up when she first hears that special honking sound in the distance. In an uncharacteristic moment of decisiveness, I made up my mind the other day to sort out years of files and cuttings and books, which had, almost unbeknownst to myself, amassed themselves since my retirement. Now the towers of material threatened to engulf the modest workroom in the garden, our family retreat, 
and makeshift office during the height of the grim Covid days. Sitting amongst the piles of books, box files and the odds and ends of an academic life brought images back to me of visiting the famous office of Brendan Kennelly in the Arts Building in Trinity College. He had the look of a smiling Buddha who had somehow surfaced in this corner room of a modernist building, lit on two sides by daylight which flooded in and illuminated the sheer and amazing volume of his public and private life as one of Ireland's most cherished poets and teachers. Books there were aplenty, editions going back in time, well-used teaching texts, volumes of gifted poetry and the bric-a-brac of photographs, tokens of affection from an audience that always seemed instinctively aware of what Brendan Kennelly was doing and saying as a poet. They got him. Be that in the darker, moody introspections or his wild, playful mockeries, the poetry of Brendan Kennelly entertained local audiences like no other. And the same with his hugely engaging lectures. Unlike many other institutions in the UK or North America, this holder of a personal chair in modern literature at Trinity taught daily and across the full range of undergraduate and graduate courses, evening lectures, and carried all the allied responsibilities for which we junior staff treasured him. His readings, both in Ireland and in the UK, particularly in the north of England, where his poetry, published by Blood Axe Books, found a deep and lasting resonance, a response which continues to flourish after Brendan's later withdrawal from his Dublin-based public life and relocation to his beloved native Kerry, where he lived until his recent death, aged 85. It was a richly lived and hugely productive life. Brendan's major books, 30 and more of them, contain a challenging, turbulent, serene and tragic view of our ordinary world, made special and memorable by the unmistakable voice which gave the poems incantatory liftoff on the innumerable stages and platforms from which he recited his lines, drawing often from an extraordinary memory bank. The seeming nonchalance of this delivery was hard won, though. He prepared every moment. When a book was nearing completion, during his incredibly productive phase of the late 1980s to the early 2000s, I would stand amazed by the sheer recollective energy Brendan had in recalling lines from an epic such as the groundbreaking Cromwell or the Book of Judas. This was no ordinary poet. And with his lectures, the narrative of desire to enthuse and excite his audience during the time I knew him at Trinity, be it a tutorial on O'Casey, a mass lecture on Yeats, a graduate seminar on myth, or a creative writing session, was simply legendary, as was Brendan himself. Yet the private life out of which these rainbows of words spilled with such abundance contained its own scars and anxieties, which made him identify with the outcast, the marginalised, and to see and hear the experience of women in Ireland as the key to all of our democratic and freer futures. Brandon had no truck with an introverted nationalism. 
He spoke often to me and other friends and colleagues of how the country needed to widen its horizons and make much more of a genuine, generous approach to Northern society. I think he saw damage in the mindsets of political and religious conservatism. But he loved a realistic, ebullient, contradictory Ireland, where people said things with such a wide angle and wry wisdom in the spoken vernacular language, wherever they came from. That's what I recalled, sitting among these books, many of them Brandon's. The laughter, of course, and the rare, unexpected shock of recognition he always brought with him as far as poetry was concerned. It mattered to him like a basic right, one of the essentials of a common, humane decency. Was that what drew him to the great Greek tragedies and his love of Greek literature as well? I don't know. I wrote this sonnet with this love in mind as a tribute to Brendan Kennelly and his poetry making. The Worry Beads for Brendan Kennelly How could I even begin to think of you down there in the rich and loamy dark with the eager snail and echo of birds wheeling because you had already flown some time ago and were taking your leisure in a Greek spot. Santorini, I'd say, telling out the worry beads, iced tea and the paper to hand, as the sheer blue sky meets the sheer blue sea. And that's you, biding your time, thinking. Begin for Brendan Kennelly. That moment on the late, late show, when the woman gave burn rang with the news that she'd won a car in the phone in quiz, broke down, telling him her daughter had died in a car crash just days before. We were stunned, lost for words. The sleek prize jarring against mangled metal, ebbing life until Gay turned to you, to soothe, to salvage. And miraculously you found the words, reciting your poem in a lilting, luminous voice. Something that will not acknowledge conclusion insists that we forever begin. The lines somehow freeing, planting seeds of hope in the broken clay. The poem about beginning. Begin again to the caroling birds, to the sight of light at the window. Begin to the roar of morning traffic all along Pembroke Road. Every beginning is a promise, born in light and dying in dark. Determination and exultation of springtime, flowering the way to work. Begin to the pageant of queuing girls, 
to the arrogant loneliness of swans in the canal, to bridges linking the past and future, to old friends passing, though with us still. Begin to the loneliness that cannot end, since it, perhaps, is what makes us begin. Begin to wonder at unknown faces, at crying birds in the sudden rain, at branches stark in the winter sunlight, at seagulls foraging for bread, at couples sharing a sunny secret alone, together while making good. Though we live in a world that dreams of ending, that always seems about to give in, something that will not acknowledge conclusion insists that we forever begin. Begin. That's for you, Rita. On this morning's programme, we heard from the Sunday Miscellany Archive, Brendan Kennelly reading his poem, Lislaut Nabby. Moonlight by Tom Clonan, Brendan Kennelly and My Coronation as the Queen of Care by Breda Joyce, The Hopefulness of Geese by Barbara Scully, Remembering Brendan Kennelly and the poem The Worry Beads were by Gerald Daw, and Begin, a poem for Brendan Kennelly, was by Paddy Moran. The music was Flute Flight by Heiter Via Lobos, played by Judith Hall on flute and Tim Walker on guitar. The Moon Has Raised Her Lamp Above by Julius Benedict, sung by Paul Hillier and Paul Elliott, with Lena Lise Kiesel on piano. Where Have All the Flowers Gone by the Kingston Trio, Wild Geese by Gaze's Ghost, Epitaphios Number 4, You Have Set My Star by Mikos Theodorakis, played by Milos Karadaglic on guitar, and to follow Paddy Moran's poem, we heard Brendan Kennelly read his poem, Begin, from the Late Late Show archive. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find out more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.